You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, thank you that we are together. Thank you that we are gathered in your name, which means you are here. And as we study your gospel, I pray that you would do what you promised to do in the gospel, which is give us Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let me start by asking you a question. I'm looking for full class participation here. There are many wrong answers to this question. Theoretically, two right answers, but only one really excellent answer. So no pressure, but here's the question. How many Gospels are there? This is the really excellent answer that was said with passion but low volume. And (laughs) the answer that was whispered correctly and excellently was one Gospel. Now, the acceptable alternative answer, which is correct but less profound, is four Gospels. And we're going to think in our time together about the relationship between the one gospel and the four gospels. How are the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, forms of the gospel about Jesus? So what we're going to do today is we're going to ask, what is the gospel? In the New Testament, which is where we're going to be spending our time, for the earliest Christians and the earliest uses of the word gospel, what was it? And then why... In chronological terms, a little bit later, when people wrote down what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why did they call them Gospels? What's the relationship between the thing someone like Paul preached, the Gospel, and what Mark wrote? And he begins it, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But we don't have time to really look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so our last two sessions... We'll look at Matthew and think about how the gospel according to Matthew proclaims the gospel about God's son, Jesus Christ. So that's the overview. Today, the gospels, or the gospel. Next time, the gospels as gospel. And then two sessions on Matthew. Looking in part about things in the gospel that are good, but are not actually themselves the gospel. So ways you could read the gospel and miss the gospel. And then the very last session, how does Matthew preach the gospel? Okay, so that's, that's what we're doing. I hope it's fun. It's funny, the whole time we were sort of, give me an answer to this question. I was warning you that there was a really good answer and sort of moderately okay answer and then lots of incorrect answers. I was reminded of this funny debate that took place on the BBC Actually, no, it was Intelligence Squared. They host these debates, what's better? And Boris Johnson, this is when he was the mayor of London, before he was, I'm being recorded, he was adjectives in parentheses that are unspoken. The prime minister was arguing that ancient Greece was superior to ancient Rome. And Mary Beard, a a classicist, was arguing that ancient Rome was superior. And Boris Johnson, asked the audience a question, and someone gave him an answer, and he said, that was an okay answer, not brilliant, 
but okay. And I was sort of thinking that the whole time, and I just needed to say it, or else I would have been thinking it for the next 20 minutes. So there's no reason to tell you that, other than to just get it out, so I wasn't thinking about that. So here's where we're starting. What is the gospel? And I just want to say this as some context for the question. Hey, we could spend a lot of time doing this, and in our last two sessions, we'll do a little more of it about this. But it's thinking about why we need the gospel. I want to jump into our material today, so I'm not going to say too much now. But I do want to sort of plant a flag that we need to come to this question. And I was in the service in this room, and I heard our preacher say, this is a hurting world that needs good news. And I think we all know that and feel that in our bones. Let me just tell you one tiny piece of evidence that supports that. Because I was recently put on my radar by a friend of this congregation's, the recently elected Bishop of Central Florida, Justin Holcomb, um, who does a lot of work and does it with his wife with survivors of abuse. And I was talking to Justin, or I heard from Justin, about a report that he had recently learned about, which is that this woman who's an advocate, um, a survivor's advocate, she works with survivors of different forms of abuse, and she had done this study where she talked to survivors of abuse and asked them, before you reached out for help, okay, before you said, this is what's happened to me, this is what's hard, this is the pain, these are the problems, I need help, before you did that, who did you think was going to be the most helpful? Who would you be able to talk honestly with and actually find comfort, healing, and hope from? And she got a list of five people, and they were, I think, in this order. I know the first one was, church will be number one. I actually regard that as a slight miracle that that's what people thought. But nevertheless, that's what they said. The church is going to be the most helpful place, followed by some form of a therapist, then someone in the medical profession, then someone in the legal system, and then fifth, other. Okay? She then asked a second question. After you reached out for help, what was your actual experience? Who was the most helpful? Who was the least helpful? Church came in fifth there, after other. So people who had real hurt who were looking for actual good news and went to church to find it. Notice that. They didn't not go to the church to find it. These are people who thought the church would be the place where they could be heard and helped. Went and found something other than gospel. Something other than good news. Which I think forces us to come back to that basic question. What is the good news, and what, if anything, do we actually have to say to a weary, worn-out, broken, bruised, and hurting world? So that's the question. What is the gospel? To answer it today, we're going to do a little bit of New Testament studies in history. I'll tell you things you may or may not know. And if you know them, 
you can feel good about yourself. If you don't, you can learn. By the end of it, we'll all know, because nothing's that complicated. Okay? All I really want to say by the end of our time together, which is at 10.50, he reminds himself, is that the gospel is the news about Jesus that gives us Jesus. That's all I'm really hoping to say. But what I want to show you is that I'm not making that up, but that's what the New Testament says, that the gospel is the news about Jesus that gives us Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, our first person to use the word gospel, our first texts that do that, and our first author to do that, are the letters of the Apostle Paul. Paul's letters are, most people agree, the earliest Christian documents that we have. Okay? There's debates about which one of them is first, but we're not going to get into that. But when you're reading Paul's letters, you're reading the earliest evidence we have written down of what Christians were saying, preaching, teaching. And even earlier than that, Paul tells us in some of his letters, when I came and preached the gospel in your city, and I'm now writing to you, reminding you about that, this is what I said. So our earliest windows into what was happening is when Paul, in one of his letters, our earliest written sources, reminds the people he's writing to, when I was with you, I said this. Get the historical sequence? That's our earliest picture of what was going on in early Christian preaching, ministry, and congregations. And we get a really nice and clear example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm basically going to take you to two passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 1. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, verse 1, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance. So I want to remind you of the gospel, and it's the most important thing I said. And then he offers a summary of what it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So this is probably our earliest evidence of what the gospel that was preached is. Okay? The gospels themselves tell a history that's earlier than this. The Acts of the Apostles, which tell the history of the early church, start before this. I just mean in terms of a literary text. This is the earliest one we have that gives us a summary of what Paul was preaching. And it's very clear. I preach the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus. Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah or the King of Israel. He died. He rose again. Both of those were in accordance with Israel's scripture. And his death was for our sins. So it's about Jesus, who he is, the Christ, what he did, lived, died, and rose. 
and it's also about why he did it and who it was for. He died for our sins. You find the same pattern in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. This is the first verse of Romans. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He says something just like what he says in 1 Corinthians, that this gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in Holy Scripture. So every time Paul's offering these reminders, he's reminding it was in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the thing that the law and the prophets promised, this gospel about Jesus, who here, he said, was David's son according to the flesh and declared to be son of God by power according to the resurrection. So it's about Jesus. It's in accordance with the Scriptures. It tells us who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God. But then in Romans 1.16, Paul also answers the question, why or for whom? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also and equally to the Greek. So it's the message about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, as the message of salvation. It's the power of God unto salvation. You can think of it in terms of three basic questions. If you want to say, what is the gospel? You just have to ask, who, what, and for whom? Who is the gospel about? Jesus Christ. What does the gospel say? It says the story of Jesus Christ, the one who lived, died, and rose. And for whom? Is this good news? Well, it was for our sins. It was for salvation. It says in Romans 5, verses 6 through 10, that Christ died for us while we were weak. He died for sinners, for the ungodly, to reconcile us to God. So it's for you. It's about Jesus and what he did for you. So it's the news about Jesus that gives you Jesus. It's not just a report from the past. It's not just a generic statement that everything's going to be okay. It's the story about Jesus in which his past makes contact with you as his past hits a personal pronoun. Christ died for you. And that message about Jesus gives you Jesus. That's what we would say if we just had 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 1, and we tried to say this is the earliest summary of the gospel, the message about Christ that gives us Christ. But we also know that in Paul's ministry, And as a result, in Paul's letters, there was controversy about what the gospel was. And this takes us to Galatians. And this is the last thing um, I'm really going to say today is a little bit about Galatians. Because in Galatians, we don't just have reports about what the gospel is, which are clearly about Jesus, 
who lived, died, and rose for our salvation. But we also get the clarifying reality that emerges when there's a crisis and when there's controversy. And we also get the kind of energy and excitement that happens when something's really at stake. So there was a German New Testament theologian named Ernst Kasemann. And Ernst Kasemann said that when he read Galatians and he read Paul, he felt like he was watching a volcano erupt. And then he would read people that have my job, New Testament scholars, writing about Paul. And he said he felt like he was watching people lay out carefully manicured gardens on petrified lava. He's like, what happened? There's so much energy. There's so much passion. There's so much excitement. It's so boring and dry and out of touch with actual human existence and need. Where's the gap? And when you read Galatians, if you don't have a New Testament scholar getting in the way, you might notice that the volcano's going off. Paul writes, and at exactly the point in the letter, where in all of Paul's other letters, he says something nice like, I thank God for you. I hope to visit you. I've been mutually encouraged by your faithfulness, and I'd love to come and encourage you, all of these kinds of things. He does that in every one of his letters, except Galatians. At exactly the point where he normally says that in Galatians, he says, I am shocked that you are deserting the one who called you in grace and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel. I don't care if we or an angel from heaven comes and preaches a gospel to you other than the one that you received in which we preached, let that person be accursed. You think, oh, something's going on. There's some kind of crisis. But maybe he just needed to sort of blow off a little steam in the first couple of verses. But you keep reading and you realize this energy goes all the way through the letter. In chapter 3, he begins, Ah, you stupid people in Galatia. Who has cast a spell on you like a witch? You began by hearing the gospel with faith, and you're trying to bring it to completion by doing works that the law prescribes? He's shocked still. And at the very end, in chapter 6, he's still, he actually, right, Paul, when he wrote letters, used a scribe. Someone called an amanuensis. But there's this moment in Galatians where it says, see with what large letters I'm writing with my own hand. He's clearly taken the quill from his scribe and in his passion started writing. One of the real tragedies of history is we don't have the original manuscript in which we can see just how big Paul was writing. Um, I like to think if it was sort of Paul's passion size, it was about one letter per page. Uh, But see with what large letters I'm writing. And then he says, far be it for me to boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord, through whom the world, the whole cosmos has been crucified to me and I to the whole world. This is where we are at the end of the letter. I wouldn't say that he sort of simmered down at any point. Right? The volcano has kept erupting the whole time. But why? What's at stake in Galatia? Well, we find out right in the beginning In verse 6, where he says, I'm shocked that you are deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is in fact not a gospel. 
because those who trouble you want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's the real crisis in contrast in Galatia. There's what he calls a different gospel, which is in fact no gospel, and there's the gospel of Christ. And all of Galatians is written to argue against, to identify and say no to this other gospel that is no gospel. And when you read Galatians, one of the things you'll notice is that Paul is always saying, not this, not that, not the flesh, not works of the law, not bondage, not slavery, not what was old, not the human self. So he's arguing against the other gospel, but he's also arguing for and he's preaching again the gospel of Christ, which is why after he says not something, he says, but this, but the promise, but faith, but grace, but the spirit, but Christ, but God. And all of Galatians is mapped by these antitheses, which are Paul's way of saying, no, not that false gospel, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which lets us ask the question, okay, well, what does he say is not the gospel? And what does he say is the gospel? And if we can catch that, it will be helpful when we turn to the gospels and see how they do not offer a not gospel, but what they proclaim is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what happens. Paul's engaged in a crisis in Galatia. This is kind of southeastern Asia Minor, what we think of today as Turkey, not too far from where that terrible, terrible earthquake has been recently, a little bit west of that, but not far. And something is going on there. And when Paul writes there, he says, the thing that's going on there reminds me of something that's happened at least twice before. So even earlier than the writing of the letter. So these are those bits that take us even further back in time into the earliest realities of the church. He says, I've got two things to remind you of when something sort of like this happened. One, I was out preaching the gospel around the Mediterranean, like I've been called to do as the apostle to the Gentiles, and a controversy rose up, and so a bunch of us met in Jerusalem. This is Galatians 2, 1 to 10. And we met in Jerusalem to ask the question, do people who are not from Israel, according to the flesh, need to observe the law of Moses to be followers of Jesus. And what that really meant, the presiding question, was do people like Titus, who had been converted and called to Christ through Paul's ministry and has become a co-worker but was not Jewish, does he need to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus? Is that part of the gospel? And Paul said they came to Jerusalem and there were false brothers and sisters who were saying, yes, that needs to happen. But Paul and James and John and Peter all agreed that that was not what he calls the truth of the gospel. He's going to use that phrase twice. That was not the truth of the gospel. It was not Jesus and observance of the law. Something similar happened a little later in the town of Antioch. This is Antioch that would have been in Syria. 
It was one of the first places, we think, where Jews and Gentiles actually worshiped together and ate together. It was a sort of experimental community in earliest Christianity. And Peter was one of the people who was eating across these old traditional boundaries. Peter, a Jew, was eating with Gentiles. But it says, some people came, and because of fear of the circumcision party, not exactly sure who that is, but clearly some people who thought the Jewish law needed to be observed because of fear, Peter withdrew, and he stopped eating with the Gentiles. And Paul says, I confronted him to his face because he was not in line with the truth of the gospel. There's that phrase again. So, Jesus plus law observance, not the truth of the gospel. Jesus plus maintaining traditional boundaries that divide people based on religious inheritance or ethnic background or dietary laws, not the truth of the gospel. So what is? Well, Paul says something similar is happening in Galatia. These people have come to town. Paul calls them the ones who trouble you. We're pretty sure as historians that's not what they called themselves. We don't think that was what they put on their name tag when they came to church. But nevertheless, that's what Paul calls them. We don't have their side of the story. We have Paul's. But Paul says, the ones who are troubling you are telling you that you, to be followers of Jesus, need to add something to Jesus. It's not that you're wrong to say Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus died for us, Jesus rose for us. It's not that that's incorrect. It is, according to the ones who trouble you, incomplete. It's Jesus and, in this case, observance of the Mosaic Law. And we know that because Paul says in Galatians 5 that some of them are tempted to or committed to the idea that they should be circumcised and become full, law-observant followers of Jesus. So it's going to be Jesus plus law-observance equals the gospel. But Paul writes, and remember, he's writing with a little passion. It gets a little racy in the Greek. I'm just warning you. There's a few sort of circumcision puns. He says... Those of you who would be circumcised, what you are going to do is cut off Christ. That's as tactfully as I can put it, right? But he uses a suggestive verb to say you are going to cut something off. It's going to be Christ. What you're going to lose is actually the gospel. When you try to add something to Jesus, says Paul, you don't supplement or complete or add to Jesus, you erase Jesus. Because the gospel for Paul is not Jesus and law observance, Jesus and food laws. Not because these things are not good. Paul will say very clearly in Romans chapter 7 that the law is holy, righteous, and good. Paul never disputes the goodness of God's law. His only argument is that the law which is good is not the gospel. 
And if you take Jesus and try to add as a requirement observance of the law, you don't add to Jesus, you lose Jesus, which is why it's not another gospel, but it's in fact no gospel. And so Paul will tell us very clearly that what the gospel is, is Jesus. Now, I let the silence sit there for a moment, hopefully to make the point. It's not Jesus and fill in the blank. The law of God is the absolute best contender there is for something to add to Jesus and still call it the gospel. And yet, if not even God's holy, righteous, and good law is something to be added to Jesus and still be the gospel, then absolutely nothing could ever be. It's not Jesus and fill in the blank. Jesus and where you come from. Jesus and your resume. Jesus and your bank account. Jesus and your physical appearance. Jesus and your family tree. Jesus and fill in the blank with the own treasures of your own heart. The gospel is Jesus with no ifs, no buts, and not even any ands. The gospel is Jesus. And according to Paul in Galatians 2, Jesus is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Or as he says in Galatians 1, 4, is the Son of God who died for our sins in order to deliver us from the present evil age. In both of those statements, the only one who the gospel is about is Jesus. And that one is the one who loved you, who gave himself for you, who died for your sins in order to deliver you from the present evil age. So it's not that this story doesn't include you. The gospel definitely includes you. It's just not fundamentally about you, and it's certainly not about what you have done, what you have not done, where you've been or haven't been. It is about what God in Jesus has done for you. And you are included in this story as the one that Jesus loved, the one that Jesus gave himself for, the one that Jesus died to deliver, the one that Jesus came to forgive. The story of the gospel is your story as a child of God, redeemed, loved, forgiven, treasured, wanted, known, seen, held, kept, reconciled. And it's that story precisely because it's the story about Jesus. And when the story of Jesus is told as the story of Jesus for you, it's not just a story from the past. 
It's the gift of Jesus given in the present. And when this gospel is spoken, when this story is told, what happens is the thing that's happening right now. The story about Jesus, and only about Jesus, is the way in which Jesus gives himself to you and says to you what the Father has always said to his eternal Son. You are my beloved child, and you I am well pleased. That story about Jesus, that gives Jesus, is the story that says that is who you are. And that love, seen in Jesus and spoken this morning in Jesus, is a love that nothing and no one can ever separate you from. How the Gospels preach that Gospel, and how the Gospel according to Matthew preaches that Gospel, is what we'll look at in our next couple of times together. I'll see you then. Thanks. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.